all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. Welcome to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. As always, I am here to answer your questions and take your comments about how to get or stay healthy and fit, and I'm happy to do that today. Email us, fit at mpbonline.org. And while I wait on those calls to come in or those messages to come in, I want to spend some time talking about really common medical issues that I see in clinic and that I've seen in primary care for many, many years and how we can support those conditions with lifestyle interventions. If you're a regular listener to the show, you know that I practice lifestyle medicine, which involves the use of things like nutrition and exercise and sleep and stress uh, to help prevent, treat, and reverse disease. And we tend to think about that in terms of things like high blood pressure and high cholesterol and diabetes. And those all respond beautifully to lifestyle interventions. But there are some other ones out there that also have a lifestyle uh, piece. In fact, about 80% of kind of chronic illness has a lifestyle, underlying lifestyle factor that could be used to help you feel better. And the first one we're going to start with is one of the most common things that I see, and that's reflux. Okay. So uh, we call often call it GERD, right? Gastroesophageal reflux disease. But the more um, kind of layperson term for that would be heartburn, right? Uh, and it is something that probably occasionally affects most of us, right? We may have had something um, that we we know we shouldn't have eaten uh, that kind of irritated our stomach and will give us kind of episodic heartburn. But for a lot of Americans, it is a much more chronic issue where they have significant pain and discomfort every single day or a majority of days and require, um, you know, sometimes multiple medications uh, to treat that or even sometimes um, you know, surgical procedures to help with uh, some things. And I am not anti-medicine. Uh, medicines have, have a role, but we want to help those medicines work as effectively as they can. And there are some lifestyle factors that we can employ to help with reflux. And I think the most important place to start is with just kind of a like a little overview of 
the part of the body that I'm talking about, because all of the lifestyle things that we can use to address the symptoms of reflux, they relate back to the anatomy that we're talking about. So, of course, our digestive system starts in our mouth when we put something in it, whether it be food or a beverage, you know, even you know, candy or gum, those kinds of things. And we start the process of digestion right in our mouth, right? We chew things up and break it down into smaller bits. And then there's also different um, enzymes in our spit that help break down different things as well. Then once we swallow, it goes down into our esophagus and all the way down to our belly or our stomach. And I like to think about um, the stomach as a a bag right now it's a muscle uh, but it is kind of bag shaped and it has a closure at both ends now it's not a hard and fast closure you can get it'll open and close that's how we get food from our esophagus into our belly and then the digested broken down material from our belly into our intestines and those two ends I almost think of them like a um, like a drawstring uh, because you can kind of get them real tight, but you can also loosen it up. And when folks have uh, chronic reflux or GERD, that kind of drawstring at the top of the belly can be floppy or it can be not not pulled as snug as we would like for it to be. And those uh, things are called sphincters, right, which is just kind of a fancy medical word for a little muscular opening. So it's a little muscle as well. And there are different things that can make that uh, that sphincter not be as tight as we want it to be. And so if it's not as tight, then things that are in our belly can leak back up into our esophagus, which that's stomach acid, right? And that's often why you get that burning sensation associated with um, with reflux. Because our GI system is lined with um, different types of cells, uh, and the belly in particular, the stomach, has uh, got a thicker layer of of like a, a mucus lining cell to kind of protect it from the level of acidity that's in it. Our esophagus doesn't have quite as much. So when that stomach acid kind of flops back up into our esophagus, we can get that discomfort feeling. So kind of the first principle to think about is what makes that muscle not as strong or what makes that sphincter not as strong. And then even if you have a fairly strong muscle, if we put more pressure on it, it's more likely to pop open. Like I was packing for a trip um, the other day and I said, oh, you know what, I'm going to pack in this duffel bag. Like I am not dragging a suitcase. And I just shoved as much stuff in that little thing as I could get. And when I went to zip it, it zipped. But buddy, it popped right back open, right? And so that's kind of one of the principles I'm talking about. When we overfill our stomach, it puts too much pressure on that muscle and can make it kind of um, flop open a little bit and increase reflux. And then anything that puts more pressure in our abdominal cavity can, again, put pressure on that muscle and make it flop open. So again, the symptoms I mentioned, like that burning sensation, that's very classic with heartburn, but some folks don't have that. They don't kind of report that burning sensation. They'll um, report like a bad taste in their mouth or um, that they feel like um, food comes back up, which sometimes it does, and that's called regurgitation. Um, sometimes it is just 
pain at the kind of top of the belly or even behind the breastbone, which can often get people can get really um, anxious about that and worried that it might be their heart. And if you're ever concerned about that, absolutely see your healthcare provider. Because we do know that um, in particular in women, a lot of times our heart symptoms do kind of manifest as GI type things, sometimes more kind of nausea, vomiting, that kind of thing. Um, but that kind of upper belly, and I tend to ask people if they tell me my belly hurts, I'll say point to it with one finger. And it, when it's reflux or indigestion type stuff, the majority of the time they take that finger and they point right underneath the tip of the breastbone, which that's kind of right sitting where that little sphincter muscle we're talking about is. And that's kind of the top of the belly where you'll have some irritation of that um, of the lining of the belly. Some other things that may kind of creep up as uh, kind of signs and symptoms of reflux can be like a sensation of there being something in your throat when you swallow. Um, that's often, um, you know, just kind of ir- irritation and scarring of the esophagus that can do that. Sometimes even strictures can happen in the esophagus after you've had um, kind of reflux for a long time. Um, hoarseness and sore throat are another big ones, and those are incredibly common symptoms, so you have to take them in context. But a lot of times folks that have chronic reflux will actually report in the morning when they wake up, their throat is sore and they're more hoarse, right? And that's that acid splashing up onto the vocal cords causing that discomfort. Um, And so anytime you have kind of prolonged hoarseness for no reason, that should be checked out by an ear, nose and throat doctor so that they can stick a little uh, little camera in there and take a look and see um, if they can see any irritation from those types of things there. But if we want to focus in on the lifestyle pieces surrounding reflux and we think back to the two things that I just told you help um, food and acid not stay in the belly, right? So too much pressure on that muscle and a weakened muscle. Then we think about foods that exacerbate that, right? And so food is often one of the things we think about. uh, And it's often spicy things, um, caffeine Um, Caffeine can make that little muscle, um, that sphincter muscle, kind of open up a little bit more than we would like for it to. Um, Citric uh, citric acid or citrus juice, citrus fruits, while it does not necessarily make that little muscle floppier, it makes the the fluid more acidic so that when you do um, have some reflux come back up, it hurts more, right? Um, And one of the kind of sneaky ones that I think people don't think about a lot um, is peppermint. Um, Because peppermint, if if your belly kind of feels just off color, you know, just doesn't feel great, you don't feel feel great, sometimes you're like, let me just pop up a mint, something like that. And in a low dose, that's fine. But when we consume lots of peppermint, and in particular the pure peppermint oil, it actually can make that muscle floppier and make it pop open more and make our reflux symptoms worse. So those are kind of some of my um, kind of red flag ones that are out there, but there are certainly more. And I don't want to just tell you what not to do to help treat your GERD. I want to tell you some things that you can add in to help with that as well. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit here on MPB Think Radio. And I'm your host, Josie Bidwell, nurse practitioner at UMMC. And I'm here to take your calls related to health and wellness. And we've been talking about 
lifestyle-related factors that contribute to a lot of chronic things that we see in healthcare and a lot of issues that people have um, problems with. And the kind of we've started talking about reflux or gastroesophageal reflux disease, and I talked about you know food kind of being um, triggers for a lot of people, and that's things like spicy foods, caffeinated things, citrus, um, tomatoes, uh, peppermint, that kind of stuff, um, but Almost, well, probably as important of what you eat is how you eat it, right? And I actually had um, a comment that said, can you put too much stuff in your belly? And you can. Um, it, it stretches. It is a muscle, so it does stretch. But like any muscle, you get to a, um, a point of no return in terms of stretching. And that causes discomfort. And it, in some folks, it may cause, um, you know, nausea and where you feel like you actually need to throw up. Um, when we eat and and our stretch receptors, so they're actually receptors in the lining of the stomach wall, get um, get fired up, right, by the amount of stuff we put in there, it sends our brain um, a signal that says, hey, you're full, right? Now, the tricky thing about that is there's a little bit of a delay. So from the time those stretch receptors start to get in, um, um, get the message to the time your brain f- kind of fully tells you, hey, you're full, um, it can take, you know, 15 to 20 minutes in there. And that's often why when we eat really, really fast – we um, don't perceive our level of fullness until a little while after that meal. Um, if you've ever, um, you know, sat down at a restaurant, you're just starving and you just shove all this food in and the waiter's like, hey, you want dessert? And you're like, absolutely, I do. And you eat it and then you pay your bill and you get to your car and you sit down and you're like, oh, my gravy. I have overdone it, right? Well, because your brain's now gotten the message that you are over full. And that's why you'll have some of those symptoms of, of kind of feeling nauseous uh, when you're over full like that. Um, the second piece of that, you know, I said anything that increases the pressure in your belly will make reflux worse. When we sit down, that's often kind of putting pressure on our abdominal cavity, which is going to put pressure on that muscle at the top of the stomach, which can make it feel like it needs to pop open, right? So how you eat is really important and timing of meals is really important and the size of those meals, right? So when if you're dealing with reflux or chronic heartburn, chronic indigestion types of things, having smaller meals that you slow down on is a really important strategy for two reasons. One, the smaller meal size is going to keep your belly from being overly distended, which puts pressure on that muscle. When we eat fast, we also tend to swallow more air. And so when we swallow more air, again, that air has to go somewhere when you swallow it. Um, so it w- is going down into the belly, again, increasing the pressure inside the belly and putting pressure on that muscle. So smaller meals, slower eating is a good idea. And then timing, right? Again, we got to think about what we're going to be doing following this meal. And if it is laying down, then then we really have to be careful, right? Because if we have reflux and we fill our belly up and we go get in the bed and we lay down flat, we have um, taken away the effect of gravity that's helping food stay down in our belly, 
right? And we're making it much more likely to push back against that muscle at the bottom of the esophagus. So um, heavy meals before bed are another thing to look at and examine in terms of trying to control your reflux symptoms. The position in which you sleep is another uh, important uh, strategy as well. Uh, a, A lot of patients often report that their reflux symptoms are worse at nighttime, and that makes perfect sense when we think back to the anatomy of the body, just like I said. And when we lay down... Um, we lose that kind of gravitational pull that's keeping the, the stomach acid down, and it's much more likely to flop back up. And we can help that, right? So we can use um, a wedge pillow, which I've talked about before in helping with sleep apnea. Um, but a wedge pillow looks like a wedge of cheese, and the skinny end of that kind of goes underneath your mid to lower back so that your shoulders and head are elevated somewhere around 30 degrees or so, right? And a lot of them, there are fancy ones. Like there are fancy wedge pillows that you can adjust the level of um, incline on and all those kinds of things. If you're wanting to try it, I would say don't um, buy like the the uh Porsche version of a a wedge pillow just gets you a good old dependable um, pillow somewhere around 30 bucks um, is usually going to get you a good basic pillow and make sure you find that comfortable and that you're able to sleep on it like that. Um, If you're a belly sleeper, one that's not great for reflux, but two wedge pillows will not work for you because you'll be bent backwards and nobody wants to sleep like that. Uh, so bed risers are actually my recommendation there. And a bed riser just looks like a um, little um, kind of hard plastic um Box and it has a little indentation on the top for the legs of the head of the bed to sit in so that they don't fall off. A lot of people will say, Well, I'll just use some wood blocks and plop it up. Well, those will fall off because there's nothing um, kind of holding the, the leg of the bed in there. So they're, you know, do that at your own risk. If you fall, if that falls in the middle of the night, you're going to wake up quite startled. Um, but bed risers are about 15, 16 bucks. You can get them again on Amazon or uh, Bed Bath & Beyond, Walmart, that kind of thing. And the pack usually comes with four, uh, right, to put on all four legs of the bed. But that's if you're using those for storage, right? A lot of people do that to kind of bump their bed up a little bit so they can fit maybe a, a box of clothes or something like that under their bed. If we're using it for reflux and to help with sleep positioning, we only need two of those. And they're underneath the feet of the head of the bed so that the whole bed is elevated up. Um, And so those are just some really good strategies there. And then the two that people don't think about is using a straw and chewing gum. Both of those activities make you swallow more air. And so if you have tried everything and you are still struggling with uh, reflux and indigestion and a lot of, you know, just feeling bloated and a lot of gas in your belly, um, take a look and think, you know, do I use straws, right? And if you do, maybe consider not doing that if you're able to. And am I chewing a lot of gum? Because both of those things are going to make you swallow that excess air and again, put more stuff in your belly. That's just not what we need um, if we're dealing with a kind of a, a weak um, sphincter muscle at the top of the belly. So those are kind of my, my tips and tricks for lifestyle. And I can't stress enough that each person is going to have individual triggers, 
Okay. So there may be people who are like, you know, I, I can have a cup of coffee and I'm fine, but if I do a cola or a soda, I'm not. Right. So when you're really trying to figure out what your individual triggers are, keeping a little diary is a really important way to just step back and assess what's going on. And uh, my favorite things to track on that are like what time of the day, what you were eating, what you were doing while you were eating, and then if you have any symptoms that followed that, right? And if you do that for about a week, then you're able to look back and say, you know, look, every time I had tea, um, I had worse reflux. Or every time I had something with um, tomato sauce on it, my reflux symptoms were worse. That way you can start to eliminate just one thing instead of just blanketly eliminating everything, which is often what I see with folks when they're doing something called an elimination diet. Um, they just eliminate, they, they Google all the things that can cause irritation in the belly, and then they get rid of all of those. And then, yay, they feel better. But now their diet's super restrictive, and we don't know what it was, right? Um, so tracking can help that. Or if you're going to do a much more kind of drastic elimination, then kind of once your symptoms calm down, we want to add things back in one at a time to see which one of those things is your particular trigger. So I actually prefer the tracking your symptoms way and starting to eliminate the things that look like the biggest um, biggest trigger on the outset of that. All right, leaving reflux and going the other direction, we will talk about one of the other most common um, complaints that we see in clinic, and that's constipation. Um, Constipation is a very common thing um, that affects uh, kids and adults here in America. And just like with reflux, there are some lifestyle changes or lifestyle modifications that we can put in place to help with that. And I think one of the most common misconceptions about constipation is what is it, right? And a lot of people think if they're not having a bowel movement every single day that that's constipation. And that's not necessarily the case, right? Um, There are people who have a bowel movement every single day. There are people who have bowel movements multiple times a day, and that can all fit in their normal pattern. But kind of the the strictest definition of constipation is going to be where there's straining to start or complete the bowel movement. The stool actually looks hard, more like rocks or pebbles. Um, And you kind of feel like you're not able to completely get out everything. And then in terms of frequency, usually it's fewer than three bowel movements a week is kind of what gets classified as constipation. So whenever um, someone comes to see me and they're talking about being constipated, the first thing I ask, instead of how many times do you go, I'll say, what's it like when you go, right? Does it hurt? Do you have a hard time going? And when it when you do go, what does the stool look like? Is it nice and soft, like an S-shaped, like a sausage, or is it much more kind of clumpy and more like um, kind of hard pebbles and rocks? And that's an important distinction to make because we certainly don't want to go down the road of um, of trying to treat constipation if if it's not constipation, right? If you're going, you know, four or five times a week and it's nice and soft. We're, we're good, right? Unless that's a drastic change from your previous bowel habits, right? So instead of evaluating yourself against everybody else, evaluate yourself against you, right? And know if you've had a change in your bowel habits, right? But what causes constipation? 
So just like we talked about the anatomy at the top part, right, we want to talk about the anatomy at the bottom part. And so once the kind of partially digested, broken down um, food moves from the belly into the intestines, different things starts to happen there. And it's usually like reabsorption of things, right? So um, water and then different kinds of nutrients are kind of pulled out of that much more liquidy um, kind of stool that we have going on. And so the longer something stays in your intestines, the longer water is going to get pulled from it, right? So the first kind of big main cause of constipation is something called slow transit. It means it just stays in your gut for a long period of time. And the longer it stays, the more water gets pulled out of it, right? It makes a, a harder, firmer stool. The second type that we may see is if there's some kind of um, – nerve issue, right? Like some kind of um, impairment of, of the actual innervation of the gut or the nerve supply to the gut. So multiple sclerosis is often an area we see here, Parkinson disease, that type of stuff. And then the third kind is pelvic floor dysfunction. So all the muscles in the pelvic floor um, which after you've had babies and those kinds of things, sometimes women's pelvic floor muscles can kind of weaken. And that weakness in the pelvic floor can make it harder to get stool out of the rectum, right? So those are kind of the, the three things that we tend to think about when we're working with constipation. Um, but the most common is going to be that slow transit. And we do have a question um, from Alice in Macomb. Good morning, Alice. How can I help you today? Oh, hi. You're talking about constipation. I got that big problem with chronic constipation. Yes, ma'am. You're not alone. And that's what caused me to have the diverticulus by pushing and going. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, so usually the pushing and straining we'll see on the outside with hemorrhoids. Diverticula are little pooches on the kind of inside lining of the colon. But the longer that stool stays in there, the more likely you'll have those little weakened areas that will pooch out and have that diverticula. Yes, ma'am. Oh, okay. Because I got the chronic constipation. Yes, ma'am. Listen, uh, I done lost my mind. I'm told people time I hit 75 and my mind don't work like it's supposed to. Well, it sounds like it's working pretty good to me. <laughs> I forgot what else I was thinking about. Well, that's, a, that's oh, okay. Oh, 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 I got big problems too with uh, it, it's okay, ain't that bad. I got the hemorrhoids and yes, stuff. Ma'am. I use uh, the mm-hmm. and stuff like for hemorrhoids, mm-hmm. and that hit pretty good. good. Okay, I think that's it. I just was kind of worried about the diverticulus and try not to push so hard and do all I can not to get that thing. Yes, and I'll be talking about some more strategies to help kind of make the stool easier to pass. Oh, okay, that's what I want. Oh, see, that's what I'm talking about. Thank you so much for being in the heat. <laughs> You're welcome, Miss Alice. You have a great rest of your day. All right, and that kind of leads me into this part. So chronic constipation, um, you know, can respond beautifully to lifestyle modifications. Sometimes we need medications as well or a combination of the two. And I'm going to dig into that and start talking about some of these things that you can try to help with constipation here on Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. I'm Josie Bidwell, and we've been talking about lifestyle strategies to help treat really common things that we see in healthcare and common things that bother you guys. We've talked about reflux. We're starting to talk about constipation and the things that we can do 
you to help um, help with that. So in terms of constipation, uh, there are you know several causes that we've talked about, but the majority of folks and the most common cause is going to be slow transit, just meaning that the stool stays in our body for longer amounts of time. And the longer it stays, the more water is pulled out of it and the harder the stool gets. So how do we fix that? Well, we make sure we have enough hydration and we make sure we have enough fiber, right? Things that are going to make stool move through at a better rate is going to be fiber and water, right? And so fiber is key, but we never want to just add fiber in without also making sure we are adequately hydrated. Because if you are not drinking enough water, and when I say hydration, I'm talking water, right? I'm, uh, you know, I love my coffee as much as the next person, but just because it is beans stewed in water, uh, it is it is not hydration, okay? Um, so we want to make sure that we're focusing on plain water um, as the thing that hydrates our body. And so we want to make sure we have enough of that on board so that when uh, we start to uh, pull water out of our um, stool, we've got plenty there to still keep the stool nice and um, soft so that it's easy to pass. And then fiber, right? There's two different kinds of fiber. There's soluble fiber and insoluble fiber, and both of them play a role in helping us have good, healthy bowel movements, right? So soluble fiber is um, really good for helping lower cholesterol, um, but it's also good for helping to just pull water and keep water into the stool because it's it's kind of gloopy. Like if you think about oatmeal and how when you let oatmeal sit in a bowl, it kind of gets gloopy sticky. That's the soluble fiber in response to um liquid. And so that's why it's really good for helping with cholesterol, but it's also helpful for um, helping keep stool soft. And then insoluble fiber is um, kind of rougher and is acts like a broom almost. So our sweet Alice, who called a minute ago with her diverticula, having that insoluble fiber kind of helps sweep the, the stool on along in um, the gut um, and help um, kind of bulk up the stool and get it to push through easier. So they're both really important. Um, now, if you just kind of go go all in with eating a very high-fiber diet, when you have not been eating a high-fiber diet before, you're going to be mad at me because you're going to have some gastrointestinal issues, right? Usually more things like cramping, bloating, more gas, um, that type of stuff. And so we want to go, we want to go slow. Like constipation didn't happen overnight usually. And so we don't have to necessarily fix it overnight when we're talking about a chronic issue. Um, the average American eats somewhere around 11 to 14 grams of fiber per day. To put that into context, the kind of bare minimum that we want is 25 grams per day. Uh, and, you know, that it also varies based on um, uh, gender. So uh, females are usually um, 25 uh, to 30-ish grams, and men are usually a little bit more than that. But if we just kind of keep that 25 in, in mind um, as kind of our initial goal, and we think about starting at, you know, 11 to 14, we certainly don't want to go all the way to 25 or 30 overnight, especially if we're not going to increase our hydration, right? So if we just put all that fiber in there and we don't give any more fluid, we're actually may make the constipation worse and may make you feel more bloated and more distension and more cramping. And so we absolutely don't want to do that. Um, 
my general rule, and remember these are general rules, you always want to speak to your healthcare provider, but my general rule is I usually try and add five grams of fiber a day, a week at a time, right? So if we do a nutrition assessment on you and you're eating, you know, somewhere around, let's say 15 grams of fiber, then over the next week, I'm going to try and get you to 20 grams of fiber each day, not 20, then 25, then 30, but 20 for the next week and see how we do. Right. And if we're feeling good at the end of that week, we may bump it up a little bit more. If we feel like we need a little bit more time there in the 20 range, that's okay. And so what what does that look like in terms of your plate? Right. And adding that fiber. Well, you can get five grams of fiber um, from a kind of medium sized piece of fruit that you eat the whole thing on. Right. So like an apple or a pear um, and you, you eat the whole thing, don't eat the core, but you eat the, the peel and the um, flesh of it. Depending on how big it is, you're going to get somewhere between three and five grams of fiber right there. Right. Or a third to a half of a cup of beans um, will get you that fiber as well. So it's not. Um, this massive amount of food that we have to consume. And it doesn't have to be, you know, usually when I say I need for you to add fiber, people go bran flakes. I'm like, if you like bran flakes, sure. Right. If you don't like bran flakes, then that may not be what we start with, because I don't want to make you um, I don't want to make it feel like a punishment. Right. Like food should be enjoyed. And so if you like fruit, that's a perfect opportunity. Or if you like um, veggies, that's a a good opportunity there. If you don't like either one of those, then, yeah, we may go with a grain product um, to try and get your fiber up there. Um, But we always want to make sure that we're pairing that fiber with a nice glass of water so that we're getting adequate hydration. And people ask me all the time, how much water should I drink? And there are calculations that we can do. um, But usually I'll say you want your urine to be very light colored. Now, it shouldn't look like straight up water, but very light yellow color. And we know that we're hydrated appropriately. Um, But again, we want to start where we are. And if we're drinking two glasses of water, let's work on adding another glass or two and try and get up to four glasses of water. It's all about staging things and stepping things up gradually. Um, Now, some other things that may um, help with uh, constipation is exercise, right? So being up and being mobile, again, helping gravity move things along um, is important, as well as consistency, right? So when we skip meals, our body is not quite sure what's going on, right? And it kind of craves consistency. And so eating at relatively similar times during the day um, helps our gut kind of get the message that food is going to be coming through at these certain times. So trying to get on a little bit more consistent eating pattern is a really important strategy there as well. And then there are some things that can uh, help if you do have some of that weakened pelvic floor muscles that can cause some issues. Um, Sometimes changing the angle at which you sit when you try to have a bowel movement. Okay, So the, the closer your kind of thighs are, toward your chest, the more kind of pressure you have to push with, right? That's why if you think about having a baby, the kind of position that women get in. But we don't want to do that just to have a bowel movement. That's why they make these little um, like little step stools almost that will go in front of the toilet that you can put your feet on to help kind of um, push your thighs up a little bit and help 
again, with some of that pressure that will help push the stool through. I think they're called Squatty Potties, which is a phenomenal name. And I wish that I had thought of that name. It's a really good one um, out there. If you can't afford a squatty potty, just get a couple of books um, and stack them up in front of the toilet and put your feet on there. And that will help take, um, you know, kind of correct the angle a little bit and help. And then think about foods that you may consume in excess, in particular in kiddos. Sometimes we see a lot of dairy um, and drinking a lot of dairy. And that can, um, for some people, can cause much more constipation. Um, So we want to kind of look and see how much dairy we have on board there. And that doesn't mean you have to get rid of the dairy completely, but maybe choose um, a dairy that has a probiotic in it, uh, like a um, like a yogurt, uh, would be a better kind of source of your dairy there so that you could get kind of that good gut bacteria on board and be able to use that there. This is Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm Josie Bidwell, and we've been talking about really common medical issues and the lifestyle factors that can help prevent and treat them. And we've talked about reflux, we've talked about constipation, and in this last segment of the show, I want to talk about fatigue. Fatigue is a really kind of blanket term for thing, and it can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. But an important distinction um, is to, to think, are we talking about true fatigue, meaning you feel like you do not have the energy to get up and do anything, or sleepiness, right? Because those are different. Now, sleepiness can certainly cause fatigue, but we want to ask ourselves, is this, do I feel like I need to sleep or do I just feel like I don't have the energy to go about my day and do uh, you know, kind of activities of daily living? And that's an important distinction because there are going to be treatments that are different between the two. Now, with fatigue being such a kind of broad term, um, there are a broad variety of causes to those things. And we always want to make sure that we're working with the correct diagnosis. So while I practice lifestyle medicine, if I have a patient who comes in with fatigue, which a ton of them do, um, I'm always making sure that we have checked for some of the big things that can be underlying for that, which can be a deficiency in something like an iron deficiency, anemia, B12 deficiency, um, thyroid issues as well. So those are all blood tests that we can do to make sure we don't have some type of imbalance in thyroid hormones or we need some kind of supplementation in terms of iron or um, some of the other kind of vitamins that can cause some deficiencies. And then there are other medicines that can cause feelings of fatigue. Um, uh, Beta blockers are one in particular. Beta blockers are great medications. They lower the heart rate, um, which can be really, and they treat blood pressure, which are really, can be really important and don't want you to stop taking your medications. But oftentimes when people first start that, they report um, a feeling of fatigue and and that type of stuff. So we always just want to rule out um, any type of um, thing that we need to correct with medication. Uh, And then we start to look at some of the underlying things for these, these kinds of unexplained fatigues, right? Um, And probably 75% of the time when I'm working with folks who kind of main complaint or main issue that they want to work on is their energy levels or their fatigue, when I ask them about their diet, they're not eating, right? Um, Or they'll say, well, I'll only eat once per day, right? Food is energy, okay? Food is calories, 
right? There's other things rolled into those calories, micronutrients, macronutrients, all of those things that we need in order to run our body efficiently and effectively. But just like if you don't put gas in your car, your car will not go. If you do not put food in your body, then your body also will not go or it will be very sluggish and feel like it doesn't have the energy to do things because it doesn't. So working on consistently giving our body sources of nutrients is one step in dealing with kind of fatigue, right? Now, it's certainly not the only thing, but what I usually see is it's a, a bunch of lifestyle factors all kind of plopped up together, right? Really inconsistent nutrition skipping meals, that kind of thing, um, and replacing those meals usually with caffeine, um, which is just kind of going to put a little Band-Aid on it, right? It's going to give you a little bit of energy for a while, but it's certainly not going to hang around um, and give you any kind of lasting, sustainable energy. Um, and then really poor sleep, okay? Um, and it, it may be sleep that while in the correct duration is either broken sleep, meaning you wake up very, very, very frequently, um, or you your your sleeping window is shifted, right? Maybe you get in the bed at nine or ten o'clock and you stay up, you know, many, many hours, either watching TV or reading or just laying there staring at the ceiling, all of those different types of things. And then you kind of play catch up later on and you sleep till much later in the day. And then you wake up and and your whole day is kind of um, kind of out of whack because of that altered sleep pattern. So if we're not sleeping enough or not sleeping the correct duration or good quality, again, that is when our body rests and restores itself and repairs all the little micro damages that have occurred during the day. And so when we combine infrequent nutrition with less than optimal sleep, those are two really big underlying issues that can come on board to contribute to this feeling of fatigue, right? And then the other one that we tend not to think about as much um, is our mental health and how that translates to fatigue. But it is so incredibly important. Um, And when I'm talking about mental health, I'm talking about just stress. I'm talking about anxiety. I'm talking about depression and whether these things are untreated or undertreated and how that impacts your energy levels. Right. Um, If we want to kind of spend just a second thinking about how. Uh, worry, right, which is often what we have with stress, right, we have this worry going on, Um, how that translates into our energy, right? I want you to think about the notion that 85% of the things that we worry about don't happen, okay? But we worry a lot. And I'm a champion worrier. Like, I can worry about all the things that don't need to be worried about. And so I have to actively invest in shutting that down or I will spend a ton of my energy trying to fix the worry, right? Or trying to fix some unknown outcome of the worry. But 85% doesn't happen. Of the 15% that does, only 3% is as bad or worse than we thought it was going to be. Right. The other we actually were able to handle well and we may have even learned something from it. Right. So if we if we narrow that down to thinking about all the things we worry about in a day and 
3% of that as being the really bad stuff, right? That's a whole lot of mental energy that we spend focusing in on and worrying. So I can't just tell you to stop worrying. It doesn't work that way, right? I wish it did. Um, But I can tell you that there are strategies and techniques out there to help you with that and that you don't have to do it alone because I see so many folks try and just, well, I can just fix it myself. And that's because we're worriers and we're fixers and we're trying to fix things, but you don't have to fix it all on your own. There are healthcare providers out there that want to help you with that. Um, Your clinical psychologists are wonderful um, in helping with stress management and helping with worry. Um, I like to do something called worry journaling, which there are apps out there for that that help you get the worries out of your head and down on paper so that they don't hold quite so much power over you and you don't spend so much time ruminating on them. But if you're dealing with fatigue, really start to take a look and say, am I nourishing my body with food? Am I letting it get rest and restored with sleep? And am I just wearing myself out with all of the worry? All right, guys, we are out of time for today. You've been listening to Southern Remedy, which is a production of MPB Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Make sure you tune in to MPB Think Radio every weekday morning at 11 for the full Southern Remedy lineup. I'm Josie Bidwell, and I've been your host. Our producer is Kevin Farrell, and the podcast producer is Jermaine Flood. Thank you so much for listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.